0: Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people.
1: Okay, can you see yourself better now?
2: Yeah, I can see myself.
1: Okay, good. Perfect. Right there. Right. It's go. good. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Everybody, tonight is going to be our 21st program that we're starting, Baruch Hashem. We are fully loaded. It's way past Yom Ta'ivim. We're, we're full already till almost January, and uh, we have a lot of exciting programs coming up, and we're going to start talking about a little bit about that. Um, again, the program is really exploding, and I want to thank everybody, all well, our viewers that come on every week and post it on their WhatsApp statuses and send it out to the people and tell people about it. We really appreciate it, and it's really giving a tremendous chizik to the program. I uh, would like to first start off thanking our advertising sponsors. This week, um, we have the Lakewood Scoop, always promoting us here in Lakewood and letting all our Lakewood uh, fellow neighbors know about this program and really being the Chazak Lakewood crowd. I want to give a special thank you to Rabbi and Yaniv from Chazak uh, for always promoting us on their platforms. Chazak offers programming for all. For more information, please go to chazak.org. I'd like to give a thank you to Mrs. Mika Sofer from COL Live for promoting us. Uh, a special thank you to her, and a special thank you to Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel Sommer from JCN Jewish Content Network for always promoting us across all Jewish platforms, digitally. Um, again, we have a lot of big programs coming up. I'm just gonna tell everybody next week, we have um, world-famous therapist, Dr. Akiva Perlman, PhD from Queens. He's gonna be discussing how pain shapes our lives, a vulnerable look into the world of trauma and suffering. Um, anybody who knows him, he's one of the biggest therapists out there actually in the therapy world. He does more lectures, but he's gonna come on and really, it's gonna get very personal with that program. Right, Menachem? That's gonna get, uh, let's get real with that one.
0: And wait. Uh,
1: that's right. And the following week, we have Rep. Simon Jacobson who will discuss how to go into Rosh Hashanah Tafshin Pei Aleph after we've been through our year of Tafshin um, it's been, Pei. It's been a wild year, so uh, we definitely need to get our mindset to, before Rosh Hashanah for that. Uh, let's open up with our host, Coach Menachem, to open up with a few words.
0: Okay, thank you, Rishi, again for doing such a great job. Welcome, everyone, to another show on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem. Last week with Rabbi Sheis Taub is uh, still ringing in my ears, the feedback and people came over to me. It's just, it uh, was really amazing. Now, um, whoever didn't see it, um, if you can always go back to the recording available at MenachemBerniffel.com. It was, it was very, very um, inspiring. Tonight's topic, being happy when facing adversity and finding condition in the modern world. So being happy when facing adversity doesn't come easy. And uh, I'm not sure if we'll be able to do it all in one uh, show for an hour and a half, but we can start the process, which it is a process and it can be uh, a life journey. I believe every person has challenges, some bigger than others. Because that's really the definition of life now you might be thinking well I don't have any challenges my life is beautiful well if that's the case then uh, maybe that itself can be a challenge are you thankful am I doing um, what I'm supposed to do am I in the right place because usually when there is growth usually is challenges and growth comes from challenges Before we get to hear from the judge tonight, I would like to share a concept I believe is very important for every person that's facing adversity or any challenge. When someone goes through a big challenge like chasveshal and death, divorce, illness, there is the process a person goes through, which it's the five stages of grief, which they call dabda. It stands for the, um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then the last one is acceptance. So I believe that every person going through even small challenges, any growth, not only when it's the huge, the hard ones, basically every time something doesn't work your way, you're facing something you don't want. So this is, this is not what I asked for. And to get to acceptance of what's going on is not easy. And acceptance means that it will not change. That's the hard part. See, when we're in in a challenge, when we have something that bothers us and we don't want it, the thoughts can take us spiraling down into a depression because basically we want to change it and it's not working out. What is needed is is the acceptance part, the last A, that can be one of the hardest things in life to accept the situation the way it is now, even if it doesn't change at all. And it it has to go even to the level of radical acceptance, which means completely and totally accepting something from the depths, really deep down, look at your life, and if this is the way Hashem wants it to be, I accept it. Now it's easier under, understood than to practice. It, it, takes, it takes a lot of work. Another thing is that we're scared. It, it is a scary place to go to that acceptance part because it can be very painful to see our life in a way we don't really want it to be. What we want to do is we want to change it. And that's really those first three steps, the first four steps till we get to the acceptance but a little secret, if, if you can let yourself go down in a dark, the dark place of acceptance, even though you might face some painful emotions, if you can let yourself go there, after that acceptance, you start finding a little bit of peace and calm, and you stop, it's basically like taking off the boxing gloves, trying to change everything, and saying this is what Hashem wants and I accept it, only after that you can feel a little bit of the, the, what we're really looking for, that calm life. And the truth is it can happen every day over. Just because you were there yesterday and you feel that you got to the place of acceptance doesn't mean that the next morning you'll still be there. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you start the process again you're back to the, to the D of the Abda. In denial, again, you want to try to see maybe I can change something. And then the process goes on again until you realize if this is what Hashem wants, I have to accept it. And the real acceptance. Growth really, the growth comes after that, from coming from a healthy place, after finding some peace. Finding some, maybe finding some ideas what could make your life a little bit easier, even though you have this challenge. But don't go into acceptance trying to change it again, because that's going to be um, not real acceptance. Because real acceptance means this is what it is. Um, the truth is, I think in, now, before Rosh Hashanah, On a certain level, people have the same challenge in the ruchnius, when they want to grow. There are many people who are not really happy where they are, and um, they believe that's the right thing. You know, I'm not supposed to be happy. I need to grow. So they're walking around with negativity, and um, there's a lot of seeing only the things that are not working out. But the truth is, you first have to be able to accept where you are to go to a healthier place, to go to um, a little bit of growth. Um, For Rosh Hashanah, you wanna work on something, you wanna grow. Truth is, every person is probably growing, but you have to be able to see it. And that the healthy way of seeing it is only after accepting yourself wherever you are now, today, even though there are things that you do have to fix. Again, nobody's perfect. There's always levels you can go to the next level but to, to be on a healthy level, to grow, comes after the acceptance of accepting yourself where you are now. So hopefully tonight, we'll get a little bit of a glimpse of, um, again, challenges and some acceptance, seeing how it works, and I sure we should be able to grow from it. Thank you. Thank you, Coach Monaco.
1: It's a beautiful opening. Let's get started over here. Let's first start tonight. Our sponsor of the show is gonna be an organi- uh, a, pro- a program called Koach. Everybody look at your screen. Attention parents of special needs individuals. Do you, did your son or daughter have a difficult time this past year due to inability to participate in Zoom classes? Many special needs kids could not learn without the person in the class. You may well, very well be entitled to makeup classes, compensation classes for last year. Co-op services can help you get the services. Co-op service can guide you, you with after school and home school hours. Now programs that offer highly trained male female staff to teach real kids in your home in New York. Check out coopservices.org. Funding is via Medicaid, Department of Education. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more after Mr. Butler, Dr. Judge speaks. Take that off. Um, again, tonight's program, we have a very special guest, the Honorable Judge Dan Butler. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. I'm going to read a little bit of your bio. I hope it's correct. I try to update a little bit. Yeah. Okay, okay, you'll update it.
2: We could do without it.
1: We could do without <laughs> it. But, you know, most people in the program don't know who you are. All right. And, uh, for the people who don't know who you are, I want to give a little bio and then I'll give a little personal uh, what I do know about you, my own bio and then we'll get into it and then you'll correct everything that we made a mistake. Judge Dan Butler has been a syndicated weekly columnist, security salesman, a college professor, retail store manager, a regional d- director of National Conference of Young Youth of NCSY. As a judge on the municipal court of Pittsburgh for more than a decade, Dan has jurisdiction of all criminal matters initiated by the Pittsburgh police from traffic t- tickets to murder. His current ju- judicial responsibilities are split between criminal and civil matters. After years of sitting on the Pittsburgh specialized semi-weekly domestic violence court, Dance Petition Band National Judicial Domestic Violence Seminars under the Specialist of the U.S. Department of Justice earned him arbitration of the National Conference of Juvenile Family Court Judges. He has lectured around the country on legal ethics for the California and Pennsylvania Bar Associations on, su- on support collective technique for National Center for State Courts, on collective responsibility over a thousand times for the United Way, and on the Jewish ethics at the hundreds of the NCSY conventions for teenagers around the country. Dan has an astonished audiences from coast to coast in locations as varied from Beverly Hilton, Radio City Musical, and the Vermont Legislature. He has been very active board member for almost a dozen charitable organizations in the past, chairman of the Holocaust Commission of Greater Pittsburgh for over five years. And he has been one of the only three board members administrating of Camp Ask for only full summer program in the world for, mis- for disabled children, almost 350 of them. Dan is a regional vice president of the OU, Orthodox Union, and has spoken in dozens of cities as a scholar and residence on the union's behalf. In recent years, Dan and his wife Nina were cons- uh, consecutive community service awards of the United Jewish Federation of Pittsburgh. For the few people that actually know Danny Butler and his wife Nina, they all told me they are such amazing people. And uh, actually over there after I advertised, they came back to me and they said, actually people were in your house for Shabbos. He has an open door policy. He has a tremendous amount of guests and um, obviously he has a lot of things to talk about. His personal lifetime well, whatever you want to share with us will be a very uplifting. And um, anybody that, that came into contact with you, I'm just going to say, from what I know, they say you're basically uh, an amazing person. That's what I've heard. You could, you could deny the charges, but you're guilty
2: oh, as charged. Tov tov.
1: <laughs> you're guilty as charged, judge. Okay, take it away.
2: Okay. big uh, am to to Coach uh, Menachem and Rabasher for the tremendous service that you do for the call. Uh, this has turned into a real... Important thing, and I know that there are people across the country who are listening. Um, ordinarily, you have talmidechachamim, you have mental health professionals. I'm neither of those. I always say I always say I'm certified as an amoritz in 26 of the 27 states that certify them. I didn't pass the test uh, for an amoritz in West Virginia. They have a much lower standard. But um, this, I really tell a story. And I have a story that I think will interest people. I uh, spent probably before either of you were born, I was the regional director for NCSY in uh, what they call the Central East Region, which is the area from Louisville, Kentucky to Sarnia, Ontario, and from uh, South Bend, Indiana to McKeesport, Pennsylvania. Actually, Mishawaka, Indiana. And in that vast area, my job was to create the Shabbos experience for public school kids who had no prior experience. And, and I did that um, all the time, full time. And that brings me to the Hebrew Academy of Cleveland. The Hebrew Academy of Cleveland now has 1,250 kids in the middle of a $30 million reconstruction program. They're building a giant new campus. They're a fabulous, fabulous Mosin. And the president of the Hebrew Academy of Cleveland for the last uh, 16 years, is a uh, dentist by the name of Louis J. Maltzmacher. Um, Louis is a, uh, one of the foremost dental educators in the world. And uh, he's been the chairman of the Agoda Convention. I mean, he really gets around. But many, many years ago, when he was in public school, Louis was the president of the Central East region of NCSY. He was, I was the Melech, and he was the Misharis Lamelech. He was my assistant and his job was to help me out. And I needed a lot of help. For instance, we're doing a Shabbaton in Louisville, Kentucky, which is 348 miles from our office in Cleveland. It's the winter time. The OU, which is a sponsor of NCSY. It's the parent of NCSY had very strict food requirements, of course. So we couldn't even use the food from the show there. We had to bring the food from an approved caterer in Cleveland. So we're making a Shabbaton in Louisville and I have to rent the truck. So first I have to drive my car to pick up Louis from school. And then we have to go back to the office and print up the programs. And then we have to go rent the truck. And then we have to go to the caterer and pick up all the food for 250 kids for Shabbos. And then we have to go to um, Louisville. But before we go to Louisville in those days, before cell phones and computers and GPS, we would go uh, to, uh, we would make a call. Louis' parents were survivors, and they had lost a lot in the war. And Louis was just about their most valuable possession. And they were a little bit worried about the fact that me, barely a teenager, was driving in a truck in the snow with their most valuable possession uh, down to Louisville at night. So we had to call them right before we left at about 10 o'clock at night and tell them we arrived safely, and then they could go to bed because it was already 10 o'clock. And then we would drive to Louisville. We get to Louisville at four o'clock in the morning and they've left the shul kitchen open for us. And we, I'm unloading the truck and I'm unloading the truck. And I suddenly realize my assistant is nowhere to be found. Where is Louis? So I search in all of the obvious places. I eventually find him in the main shul of this giant shul in Louisville. And like so many other shuls, it has a near of course. And under the near is a stylized, Osiris the, the artistic version of, the, of, of what we know to be the Ten Commandments, it's got that stoop-shouldered thing going on. And he is sitting there right in the middle of all the seats in this empty, dark shoulder. It's only lit by the Nair Tumid. And he's looking up at the Osiris uh, the Rashi Tavis there. And I tried to be as gentle as possible. I said, Louie, it's 4.30 in the morning. What are you doing? And He looked at me blankly for a minute, and he asked me, what's the first commandment? I said, seriously, this is what we're going to talk about now? The Shabbaton starts at noon. We don't have a lot of time. We're not going to get any sleep. Let's get going. Let's unload the truck. He said, no, really, what is the first commandment? And he stumped me. I said, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Let's unload the truck. And he said, no, really, what is the commandment? And he had me stumped. I didn't know. Turns out later, figured it out Some that I was machavened to the Abarbanel. I'm sure wherever the Abarbanel is right now, he's not saying me and Danny Butler from Pittsburgh, but anyway, I was machavened to the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel explains it very cogently. The Abarbanel says, you were the prisoners, the slaves of the most powerful, no, I saved you. And that the obvious corollary to that is, we always have to be optimistic. We always have, a, have to have a positive viewpoint. That's the first of the assertions. I never heard that before. How could that be? Well, I gave you a few quick proofs just to keep you happy. Uh, and the death not too long ago. Um, what are the three questions they ask you when you get to heaven? Question number one. There's actually a difference between the Gemaran Shabbos and Gemaran Shabbos. What the first question is, but the Ramban quotes the Mechilta, basically saying they're the same thing. Doesn't matter. Bottom line is, first question is Nasata, 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 Did you be honest in your business dealings? First question you get up there. Second question, la torah. because you can't be a Jew without learning. It's not possible. And the third question is, see Pisa, the Yeshua. Did you anticipate that there would be a Yeshua, a redemption? Oh, that's a dumb question. I died. There was no Yeshua. What are you asking me? The point is, you have to be somebody who anticipates that things will get better. And it's interesting, because when I did this whole Torah one time at Shabbat, Solomon, no less, when he heard this, said that actually the Sma the say for says that um, what's the Makor what's the origin of the idea that's tz- a big principle and this is that's where you get it from so clearly it has some meaning. There's a million other examples. I'll give you one chayi Sarah Shana our Sarah. Sorry, you may have lived 127 years. Rashi said, Kulam Shovin shav- lato- Latova. All of them were equal. All 127 years were equally good. Baloney, she lived in the desert. 90 years old, she has no children. She's living in a tent that's not air conditioned in a desert with a guy who leaves all the doors open. Maybe somebody will stop by, and you never know what he's going to bring somebody home for kiddish. And, and if she wants a quart of milk, it's a two day camel ride. To a 7 Eleven run by just today, an Arab, a quarter milk. No, actually, they use liters, a liter of milk. What kind of happiness? Well, what kind of good life was that? But that's the whole message of Sir Imena. That's what she left us. That you gotta make kulun shovel and latova, you gotta make every day good. That's your job. There's a zillion other examples. I'll give you, I'll give you another one. Um Elyonovi. Elianovi says to Hashem, he says, they gave up on you. He says, uh, 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 what do you call it? Um they, They've given up on your bris. Uh, Novi was the first one outside of New Jersey to utter the term, forget about it. He said, basically forget about the Yid. They're done. They, they, they broke all the rules they, they ruined the bris that you had with them, forget about them. And Hashem said, no, we don't ever give up. Ever, 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 and as a result, we know Eliyahu Novi lo mace. Eliyahu novi never died, and Eliyahu Novi navi is, 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 is a required guest at the two things that you'd never stop doing. Pesach Seder, we got a place for Eliyahu novi, and at every bris, every bris miller, there's a Kisei She Eliyahu, because Eliyahu was essentially sentenced forever demonstrate that we don't ever give up. Ozvuos Brisecha is what he said. We don't give up. Uh, here, Pesach. Nobody wants to hear about Pesach this time of year, but here I'll throw in a little Pesach. The Haggadah asks a really good question. Matzah al Shumai. Why are we doing this matzah thing? Why are we doing this gut-clogging uh, matzah selling, basement cleaning thing with, uh, with matzah? Why, why do we do that? And the, the, the Haggadah answers it's that they didn't have time for their bread to rise. every little school kid knows 18 minutes. Really? That's the reason we do all that stuff? How's that possible? Whoever, heard, they, first of all, Moshe Rabbeinu had told them we're leaving soon. Whoever heard of Jews who didn't make sandwiches? Everybody knows you're going on a trip, you make sandwiches. They didn't do anything to prepare. And that's the lesson of matzah. The lesson of matzah is that after 400 years or 210, whatever, they gave up. Moshe told them they're going and they were so and they were so beat down, that they just didn't buy it. They didn't prepare for it. They didn't accept it. And forever, we clean the basement and we sell the chametz and we burn the chametz and we eat matzah so that we never, ever, ever forget that we yidin, can never, ever give up. That we can never lose heart or lose faith. Um, I'll throw in one more. We're told Rav Yorad Lebovel. It was after the base of Mekdash had been destroyed. The Torah was essentially decimated. And Rav, the great Rav, on his own, by himself, made the effort to restore Yiddishkeit. And he did it so successfully that he established a of Surah and Pompadizah that lasted for 1100 years. I remember being in a class once where Rabbi Wine was teaching in Miami Beach, and he said, Yeshivas of and Visa lasted for 1,100 years, The kid in the back said, imagine the deficit. So you would expect that Rav, who saved Yiddish, who saved the Jews to, for Torah to survive, of Torah to survive, that he would have an angel on his shoulder helping him all along the way. He'd have Kvitsa in a million ways. But we're told Rav Yala Bavel, he went down to Bavil, Umatsu and he found a valley. The God there and he put up a fence, and he built a Yeshiva there, Param Ravihi. Three times he failed. A man who was and saved Imu Torah, established gigantic yeshivas. he wasn't successful until the fourth time. We don't ever, ever, ever give up. And of course, you know, everybody knows about the Maraglim. Moshe said to Hashem, he said, you know, military adventure we're about to go on. The guys are telling me we're gonna need spies. And Hashem says, Okay, and yisrael You want to send spies? Send spies, Send good people. Bear in mind in the back of your head that I'm driving the bus. You don't really need this, but send spies, gazunter. So they sent 12 spies, of course. We all know the story. They went in, they spied. They came back, all 12 came back with the same exact story. The first 10 said, wow, giant grapes. We've all seen the pictures. Okay, land of milk and honey. But there are giants there. We're all going to die. And Kalev and Yeshua, the last two, they had the same exact information, the same story. And they said, wow, giant grapes, land of milk and honey. But they had a different attitude. They said, can't wait to see what Hashem does with the giants. And B'nai Israel heard all that. And they voted with the 10 instead of with the 2. And they beat their chests And they said, oh, we're going to die here in the desert and all that stuff. And Hashem said, as millions and millions of parents have said since, you cried tonight for no reason, I'll give you a reason to cry. And that night was the night of Tisha And we know that every problem we ever had came to fruition on Tisha Right. And we all know how it works. We'll go with the Yerushalmi on this. We know how it worked. Every, all the men between the ages of 18 and 60, they had to die out during the next 39 years. Okay. None of the women, by the way, that's the last time on record where women said nothing. But anyway, the, the, the men had to die. And the way it worked was every fish above night, every earth fish above, they would dig a big pit and everybody would lie down in the pit and wait to die. Every year, one thirty-ninth of them die. Now let's let's do the math on this. It's the first year. You're 19 years old. You see there's guys over there who are 60. I'm not worried. The odds are 39 to 1, I'm in good shape. Save me some money in the morning. I want it to taste like cocoa puffs. Okay? So nothing happens. You're fine. What about the the next to the last year? The odds have gone from 1 in 39 to 50-50 because there's only one year left. Now you're a lot older. And now there's a lot of hugging and kissing and gnashing of teeth and everybody's all worried and you say goodbye and you get into the pit and fa- half of them made it. And now it's the last year and there's no more odds. Everybody's gonna die. There are so few situations where you know you're gonna die, they saw it happen already 38 times. And your Shami tells us, the next morning, they all got up. How could that be? They must have made a mistake with the date, they figured. So they stay, They went back in the next night, and the next night, and the next night, until tuba of. That's one of the origins of the moralists, as the origin of tuba of. Okay, why do we have tuba of? Because they got up that day, and they suddenly realized, hey, we ain't gonna die. And they didn't die. And of course, that was the lesson. Because we never, ever, ever give up hope. And that leads into what's really my strong suit the story. If you're going to choose relatives, my suggestion would be choose one of those dot-com millionaires or maybe somebody who runs a hedge fund. That would probably be a good idea. Um, I have a brother and he's neither of those things, a little bit of a disappointment, but he's, you know, he's a Muslim and he's an educator. So years ago, he was the principal of the day school in Peoria, Illinois. Raise your hand if you've been to P.O. Nobody's been to Peoria and I. Okay. And I mean, we went there once for Simchastara, and they had a big crowd because at that time, Soviet Jews had made the idea of going to Shol and Simchastara very popular. They gotten a lot of uh, publicity in Moscow because they went to Shol and Simchas Torah. So we, we had a lot of people, but the problem is, what do you sing if nobody knows any songs? But it turned out everybody knew two songs that we sang the whole night: Govd Melich Yisrael and "Dai Die, Die, Die. That's what we did. So anyway, so my brother and his wife, they're expecting their first child. And it's always an adventure. And they have this beautiful, beautiful blonde girl. And they name her Devora. And almost immediately, they discover that there's something very, very wrong. She was life-flighted to the Children's Hospital in Chicago. And it took them a few days to diagnose. And it turns out she has a unique Jewish genetic disease called familial dysautonomia, Riley Day Syndrome. A lot of different things no tears they don't feel pain and how dangerous it is not to feel pain you break your finger it turns into gangrene you never know about it. can't take a shower by yourself because it's either too hot or too cold and you don't know and but the biggest problem is the autonomic nervous system doesn't work right and suddenly in the middle of the day walking down the street going to show the whole autonomic nervous system that keeps us breathing day and night could suddenly shut down and you're gone you have four minutes before there's no oxygen to the brain so they were to say the least, depressed. And my brother, raised as a bnei even in Pittsburgh, a Kleisenberger Hasid, a big, uh, a big fan of the Kleisenberger Reb. The Kleisenberger Rebbe Yehuda halberstam was a man who had a bunch of children. He went through the Holocaust, lo elenu, and he lost all his children. And he came back. He came to America, and he had more children. And he did. He not only built his Hasidus back up, but he also had promised in the concentration camps where they said somebody's going to the hospital, a hospital meant they were going to die. There wasn't a real hospital. He promised someday I'll make a hospital for Yidden. So he devoted a good portion of his life to making a hospital for Yidden. He made the Laniado. he created and fundraised, built this incredible Shomer Shabbos hospital to American standards in Tanya, the Laniato hospital, a phenomenal hospital. And my brother is a big fan. And I'll tell you the truth. I, I mean, I'm not, you look at me, I'm not exactly a city she is. but uh, I'm kind of a fan too. I'll tell you what my personal experience with him was. Uh, my brother uh, was living in Los Angeles and, uh, at one time and he had raised a bunch, he had had some sort of event for the Laniato Hospital. He raised a bunch of money and he was going to see the rabbit. Now I was at that time professionally single I was more single than most people ever are. In fact, in those days before iPhones and blackberries and all the things that people have now, I had a little black book. And attempted shidduch after attempted shidduch, I was up to number 146 in my little black book. And I would fly into New York and I would go to a restaurant at that time. Where else could you find a kosher Chinese restaurant? I'd go in and uh, I'd say to the owner, I'd say, the Chinese waiter, who just said those new ones built their he just spoke to us in Yiddish, and he'd say, Shh, he thinks I'm teaching in English." But anyway, so we—I would go to this Chinese restaurant three times on a Sunday when I flew into New York, and I'd have three different dates, and they were such professionals. I'd come in, and they'd say, "Danny, brother, when you get into town, even though I'd been there twice that day already." So. I have a date planned, but I have a little bit extra time. I had rented a car. My brother hadn't rented a car. I said to him, you know what? You have to go to the Rebbe. I'm a little, I'm free now. I said, I'll take you to the Rebbe. So we're going to the Rebbe's base medrash in Union City, New Jersey, which is the headquarters. It's right through the Lincoln Tunnel. We head there. We get there. My brother is dressed the way a Jew dresses when he goes to see the Rebbe. And I'm dressed like a Balagola because that's my job. You know, the cap, the leather jacket. I was a hot I said, you know what? You go and do your Hasidisha thing. I'm going to stay out here in the parking lot. He says, no, come in, come in. You'll come in. I said, no, it's not my thing. He says, come in. Okay, so I come in. I stand at the, all the way at the door, and he goes up to see the rabbi. And the rabbi, who doesn't miss a, a thing, looks behind him all the way across the room, and he says, and I'll translate, as a matter of fact, for those of you who know Yiddish, don't translate. for Let me, let me do the translation. He says, who is that fine-looking, tall, young man? Yeah, i 'm doing the translation here, and uh, my brother says, this is the breeder it 's my brother he says is he married? My brother says not yet the Rebbe says my brother is he looking for a shiddich? My brother rolls his eyes and says there's there's and the Rebbe does one of these, and he waves me in well, I mean you know when you 're in the king 's court. You don't have much choice, especially when two, berlicha, see them grab me by each elbow and propel me six inches off the floor across the room to the rabbi and deposit me right in front of the rabbi. and the rabbi and I are suddenly nose to nose. And he looks at me and he looks at me and he looks at me and then he looks over to my brother and he says, probably this month. We get back out to the parking lot and I have lost my little black book. I have one date left that night. I go out with the girl. Three weeks later, we get engaged, we get married, and that's it. We've been married now for 43 years, but here's the thing. The next day was Rosh Chodesh. So when the Rebbe said, probably this Chodesh, he only had one night. I thought that was really cool. So I'm kind of a fan. But anyway, my brother from the Children's Hospital in peoria I mean in Chicago, he calls the Rebbe. And he talks to the Rebbe himself after talking to the Gabai or Shamus or whatever it was. And the Rebbe tells him something that if I were in the Rebbe business, I would stay away from. Uh, clearly, he didn't know anything about this disease. I wouldn't make predictions. If I, if you're a Rebbe, you shouldn't make predictions because you're going to disappoint somebody, I would think. And the Rebbe said to him, don't worry. He said, "You'll dance at her chasana." Well, the reality is that if these kids get past 10, they're considered old. It's just not it, it, I mean, it's inconceivable. But that somehow encouraged this young couple in Peoria. And they were so committed. They watched all the time, constantly. They played such heads-up ball. They were on top of her all the time. If she stopped breathing, if she got burned, if she, something happened, she, they were on top. They found the best doctors. They found everything that time, only one doctor in the world took care of that, Dr. Felicia Axelrod, I don't even know if she's still around, but anyway, and they did a fabulous job. They then had another daughter, a gorgeous, beautiful girl, perfect in every way, and as often happens in those situations, eventually the younger sister became the older sister. And took more and more responsibility, and took care of her older sister, who had to be hospitalized all the time and because they have no sense of taste, they have no interest in eating, so they need uh, they need all sorts of encouragement in a lot of ways, and a simple germ can turn into pneumonia and become worse and worse it, it's just it could be horrible but these this young couple they as they got older, they kept at it to the point where as eventually happens, the younger daughter passed the older daughter and found the right guy and was getting married. And at that point, DeVoe was in a very bad way. The older daughter was in a very bad way in the hospital. And my brother, for some reason, to caterer, he thought he was, he should cater his daughter's wedding. If you ever need surgery, I would suggest don't do it yourself. If you ever need to cater a wedding, uh, get somebody. Don't do it yourself but anyway. So I said, "I'll help you out. I have a van. I have a credit card. I'll go to Restaurant Depot. Give me a list." He gave me a list. I filled up the van. I come back to the show where the wedding's going to be. I unload, and he says, "All right, give me a receipt." Instead of receipt, uh, I'm not going to give you a receipt. I want to be a shuddaf. I want to be a partner in the Simcha. I said, the, the, "You're only making one wedding." well he became livid he became so angry at me how could you say a thing like that devourer could get married what are you talking about and i suddenly realized what a faux pas what a terrible mistake i had made despite the fact that DeVer was clinging to life in the hospital this is what kept him going how could i uh, uh, uh. so i apologize profusely as you have to in that situation and said i misspoke sure devourer could get married but you know what Sometimes, when the inevitable happens, sometimes, when the inevitable happens, you can't pat yourself on the back and say, oh, see, I was right. And the inevitable happened S-s-s- a few years ago. It was Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, Devorah got married. Really? A. A guy, a phenomenal guy, a guy from Queens. I mean, the only, the only flaw I could see in this guy who had a suit and a hat and a and a driver's license was that he was a fan of the New York Yankees. But other than that, the guy was fabulous. And when my brother sat down with him and explained to him the care he would require for his new wife, he said, I don't know who you're describing. You're not describing the girl that I'm marrying. There's nothing wrong with her. And then they had a wedding in Pittsburgh. Such a wedding. My brother didn't cater, thank God. But such a wedding. Everybody came, the Kleisenberger Rebbe was by then gone, but I think his son came and the Shamus came. And I, uh, unbelievable, people came from all over the world, literally, for this incredible Simcha. And this couple, my brother and my sister-in-law, took their daughter down the aisle, the way Jewish parents do, they had to hold onto her tightly because she had a she has a taxia and can't walk straight. So they held onto her tight and walked her down to the chuppah. And there, there was this mensch, this mensch, this wonderful guy worked for the post office. Wonderful guy, and. The two mothers are taking her around him seven times. The only time I ever saw them stop in the middle and turn around and go back the other way three and a half times so she wouldn't get dizzy. And then the brachas and the ksuba and everything. And then he broke the glass first try, very impressive. He broke the glass and then I saw a miracle. This couple who for 30 years had played heads up ball and been on top of everything. This couple who had been so careful and so concerned and watched so carefully, they stepped back and let the stranger take their daughter back up the aisle. Because I guess that's what a husband does and besides she has the taxi and couldn't walk straight. And then we had a party. They all came, the girls from Simcha and Simcha Special and Hask, all the girls she'd come across over all the years. And the blind girl, she saw everything. And the deaf girl heard the music. And the girls in wheelchairs, they danced. We had an incredible, incredible Simcha. And I realized. That it only happened because this young couple, inspired by a great person, but also on their own, refused to do anything but keep on going. They refused to give up because that's the first of the series of difference. And that's one of our biggest obligations. We can never give up. We can never lose optimism. We just can't. It's, it's not who we are. And by not giving up, and by not losing faith, we can get through. That's my pitch. Wow. Powerful What's that? You know, do you We're want to talk a little
1: again. bit about your personal stories? I'm not going to put you on the spot.
2: Well, I mean...
1: Uh, background about you?
2: Yeah. I've... Uh, been a judge for off and on since 1985. But in different I've had judicial positions since 1985. But um, if people I meet and show ask me what I do, I tell them Kirov, because that's what we all do. And uh, we have had our own adventures. Our oldest son had was born with cystic fibrosis. Um, spent literally half of his 24 years in the hospital, eventually got lung transplants, got cancer from his new lungs, endured chemotherapy and stem cell transplants and whatever, and eventually, uh, eventually didn't make it. Um, we have uh, incredible perfect children and uh, we also have children who are even more special than that. We have two autistic sons. One is 37 going on, well, let's say six. And the other is uh, 34 going on maybe 10. And they live at home. And uh, that, has, uh, that makes a tremendous difference in our lives. Because Hanukkah is Hanukkah for a six-year-old and a 10-year-old. Uh, Rajashana is apples and honey and designs and stuff, even all these years later um, and i mean we're we're kind of a st- close family because i've lived at the same address my entire life in the house where my Zeda lived, and he was the first mushkiach for the first o u product which was heinz ketchup and uh, I, I next door now uh, is my daughter and son-in-law and their kids. And my 97-year-old aunt lives next door and we're all together for Shabbos through COVID, through everything. And uh, it's made a giant difference in our lives. The day school that's next door to us is uh, along our driveway is the Butler-based Medrash. My parents started that day school with my aunt and uncle before they even had children. And they put it next door. And uh, we live in a unique situation and we refuse to be unhappy. Okay. Coach Monaco, uh, should I tag you?
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: okay, Judge, we, we got a few people that wanna ask live questions. Um, we have a few questions that were emailed in. Um, so are you ready to get to it? We're gonna take a one minute break, okay? Sure. We're gonna talk about this again one more time. Um, Again, tonight's sponsor is um, COACH, Attention Parents especially these Children. If you're looking to keep your child busy and have them learn new skills, if you have self-directed services, there's a program called COACH Services that has trained providers to teach your special children recreational skills like piano, music therapy, karate, yoga, art, basketball, computer technology, baking, Zumba, and much more. I I might sign up myself. The classes take place in your home and the... and the base, and it'll be in the center after Newly, new programs that offer highly trained male, female staff to teach real skills in your home. Check out, <laughs> my wife is laughing, services.org. Okay, um, let's put on the first live question. Is she available? Sarah, you're going to go on first. Sarah, you're on.
2: Okay, hello. How are well, you? Baruch Hashem, and how are you?
1: Amazing. And thank you so much for sharing. You're amazing. We
2: live question. In an amazing world.
1: Good. So I'm, I'm glad in our amazing world we have amazing people. My question is your, your side of never giving up is totally right, totally on target, totally 100%. But when a person is in a very, very difficult situation, and there seems to be no end in sight, or the inevitable, terrible thing that they were hoping doesn't happen does happen, how does a person keep on having
2: the koyuch to keep on going and not giving up? Uh, Well, I'll tell you. First of all, you need something to hang on to. You know, we always hung on to and still hang on to, is Shabbos. When our son spent Shabbos in the hospital, Baruch Hashem, we live in a community where you could walk 45 minutes to the children's hospital safely. And we did it, my wife once did it like five times in one long Shabbos, cause she had different things. She's a principal of the school and she had a bus, an environment, an offroof and whatever. Shabbos is our touchstone. We start preparing Shabbos on Wednesday and we finish cleaning up on Tuesday. Shabbos is everything. We have Orchim. We bring them in, you know, when you have two autistic children. So you can't sit the four of you every time, all the time, looking each other in the eye. Of course, COVID has changed all that, but Baruch Hashem, we have the family together. But we found that by reaching out to other people and opening our doors, that it changed our whole lives and the lives of so many others. We got involved in my wife, was so worried from the beginning how long could our child live we had a brand new child and suddenly they were telling us he was never going to make it to bar mitzvah this is a kid who uh you know, played the drums at a Haas concert and graduated from YU and once taught the president and the vice president uh, on national TV how this Starbright computer system worked that Steven Spielberg spent $60 million on to interconnect all the children's hospitals in the country. And the kid with the Yarmulke was the one they had on national television showing the president and the vice president how it worked. And all of it, all of it was centered around. The things that we were able to do for other people, and I say we, let's face it, I married it. So you know, the Rebbe didn't make a prediction with me. He gave me a bracha, and the bracha was that the person I would find that day would be the person who, 43 years later, I could tell you is the strongest and best part of my life. So that that uh, she was worried about her child dying, so she joined the Chevra Kadisha. Our child was sick and she learned everything about every hospital. And to this day, when patients come from all over the world, she is our bigger Holen. She's the coordinator of some incredible volunteers who night after night make meals and give rides and do all the things pre-COVID. It was a lot easier personal contact, but she still does it and they still do it. Some incredible, wonderful people. And it woke up a feeling of community in our community where we take care of other people. And by helping other people, we got involved with Camp Hask what a remarkable institution. What a remarkable place. And and we found that by doing that, it helped us. Everything that we did for somebody else helped us, made us stronger. Because the problem is when you sit and think about your problems, anybody, anybody you know, my son used to say that your hangnail hurts you as much as my lung transplant hurts me because it's yours. And if you just sit and, and be upset about it, it's terrible. It's devastating. You have to find other things to do, other things to create, other things to focus on, and helping others works better than anything. Is that a solution? Is it going to make the inevitable or the, the devastation less? No, but it will make it tolerable. That's what we found. Baruch Hashem, we found that because it made our lives happy.
0: Could we back up for a minute? Well, this is going to be backing up many, many years because for somebody to get a place to what you're talking about, like I mentioned before, is a process. In the beginning, you know, it's very, very hard facing things that you don't like. So the question is really if you remember how you changed or how it was before or if there was a before and after. Um, You know, right when you got married, you had probably different goals, and then you found out that your life took you a different path. Do you remember that change, how the process went?
2: I do, but you know, Hashem has the whole story laid out before Him, and sometimes He prepares you. Our experience was that our world went from black and white to technicolor because we discovered a whole world of chesed that there are so many cool Israel is real. So many people in so many places are out there with a hand outstretched, waiting to help you. That changed our lives right away. You know, not everybody is understands what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act. And it makes people uncomfortable. And some people don't want to say anything. You have a sick kid, which uh, should do him and all kinds of things. But you know, I <laughs> once heard a rough say, somebody asked, what are you supposed to say? when somebody says to you, we had a child who has Down syndrome, and the rub said, you're supposed to say Mazel Tov because you've got to elevate everything on your own. And our world changed from black and white to technicolor just because we suddenly saw all the things that were around us, and all the people who were around us with outstretched hands. But I'll tell you what I meant when I said that Hashem prepared us for it. Many years ago, many, many years ago, before there was Yachad, before there was uh, uh, Camp Hask even. I was doing a Shabbaton for NCSY for uh, seventh and eighth graders in Long Island, in the shore in Long Island. And there were two brothers, their name was Feld. And they were working with special needs kids. I have to understand, I'm a little older than you, but those of us who are older, never met a special needs kid when we were children. There were no such thing, it just happened they were all hidden away especially in the firm world and of course in the From world we have strange perceptions of that whole problem also but we never saw them suddenly they're everywhere maybe it's ikvus of the mashiach or maybe we're just the windows have been opened and the doors have been opened and we're all better off i always say about camp hask camp Hask does three things it helps a child in so many ways for a whole summer it's a magnificent, incredible experience. It helps a family. that when you have a child who could run into traffic or can't breathe or all the other problems that are out there for the whole summer, you, you have confidence that it's gonna be taken care of. But let's face, let's do the numbers. How many parents, how many children have been through Camp Ask in the last 40 years? A thousand, I don't know. You know who it helped? It helped the 10, 12,000 counselors who had the experience that their parents had taking care of somebody who relied on them, who needed them. There are some kids at Camp Ask who need three counselors full-time, day and night to take care of them. That's how difficult their care is. And those kids are changed forever. And that's changed all of us in the last 40 years because suddenly there's a new perception, there's a new understanding, there's a new, everything's different. So our lives changed and that's how they changed. But so I was telling you about the Shabbaton we had and these Feld brothers, these two brothers working special needs kids. And they said, oh, we have some kids, they have a problem. They don't have tears or something because they don't give, we bring these kids to the Shabbaton. And whoever was in charge said, yeah, sure, no problem. We had no idea what we were getting into. And if, I, if hey, they had asked me, and I ran Shabbatones all over the country, if they asked me, I would said, absolutely not. You're going to bring kids with wheelchairs? You're going to bring kids who can't talk, can't speak, can't move, need to be fed, have to sleep in the building because you can't take them anywhere? That would have been crazy. And plus, you have seventh and eighth graders. And frankly, I did not have confidence that kids that age would see these kids and wouldn't make fun of them because I never had the experience of meeting up with kids like that. I was a young, single kid. And I was much smarter than I am today, I thought. And it was a miraculous experience. Because those, we had wheelchair races on Friday night. Those kids dug right in and they surprised us all at how incredibly mature and wonderful our kids can be. And I remember seeing, before the Shabbaton started, a kid showed up with a wheelchair crammed into what was then a Volkswagen Bug, the smallest, ugliest car possible, and another kid's parents came in Lincoln Continental, which was a big car with a giant trunk, and they, pulled, they easily pulled their kid's wheelchair out. It was two kids in a wheelchair. And two things stand out in my mind forever from that Shabbaton 45 years ago or more, and changed my perception long before I had special needs kids of my own. At a Shabbaton, before Shalashuta's time, the kids are sitting around in a circle and they're singing the and whatever. And I watched one kid, a cool kid. The cool kid never joins in. He sits and watches with a little smirk on his face. It's his first time, he's never been in this situation, he's uncomfortable, he's sure everybody's watching him. And he doesn't sing or anything. And directly across from him is a kid in a wheelchair. A kid who I will remember forever, his name was Eric. I don't know where he is now or what. And this kid, sitting in his wheelchair, everybody's singing, and he's trying to clap. He's trying so hard to bring his hands together. And the cool kid is watching him so carefully. He's watching and watching, and you could see him sigh with relief when Eric is able to bring his two hands together. And that cool kid started to sing and started to clap. And then later that night, we had Malava Malka. We had a band And CSO, I always have a band. Music's a wonderful thing. The band was playing, it's a small show. The ways it was set up was they were blocking access. The wheelchair couldn't get through to the bathroom and Eric had to go to the bathroom. They wanted Eric to, and Eric said he wanted to say something to the to the crowd. Eric, who'd never been with normal kids before, he wanted to say something. First, he had to go to the bathroom, and it took three people to clear the band away, and get his wheelchair through, and two more people to take him to the bathroom and make sure that he got out and stayed clean and everything else. And finally, he gets back out, and they put a microphone in front of him, and he struggles out with the words because he can't speak much better than he can clap, and he says, "I'm so lucky tonight." He says, I never had friends before. And this Shabbos, I got friends. I realized this kid feels he's so lucky. He can't even go to the bathroom himself. He needs an army to take him to the bathroom and he's lucky. I'm lucky too. The cool kid is lucky, we're all lucky. And I never forgot that. So the years later when I had my own special kids we were ready.
0: Wow. But that, well. but that's part, part, of, um, part of this whole journey is the acceptance part that I mentioned in the beginning. To be able to open yourself up to accept help from the community, from others. Like you said, many years ago, it was much harder because nobody was ready to be open what's going on but to be able to realize this is what Hashem wants and I'm going to take all the help I can get, that's a part of the grief process.
2: It's true, but it's also an attitude. I have to tell you that our son Mikey was always uh, considered a chal <laughs> posakana his whole life. And when people would say, Mikey, do you ever wonder, I mean, he took 70, 80 doses of medication a day around the clock. We spent hours a day banging on his back and chest to free up the mucus that was like um, like glue, that trapped the bacteria that caused the pneumonia. That could eventually could be the end. And people used to say, "Mikey, did you ever ask why not? Why me?" And he used to say, "Why not me?" It, Hashem has such an incredible sense of humor. Mikey's best friend is a kid who lived 300 feet up the street. Another firm kid, Rafi. These two kids both had cystic fibrosis. Can you imagine? And both of them are now gone. But, Ralph, like you always used to quote Raffi. Rafi used to say, I have cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis doesn't have me. And that's an attitude. That's always an attitude.
1: Judge, so, I just want to say, uh, quite a few people here are texting over here. Um, they say your mom should inspiration. Some, some people mm-hmm. know you from a long time ago. Um, person Amy says, Judge Butler, you're amazing. We make you at the village school. We cry together. Uh, there's a bunch of them. I don't want to get into all the names, but that's, I'll send you all the things. There's a lot of people very uh, touched by, mm-hmm. by, by your feelings. One of the questions people are texting over here: Did you ever find yourself questioning your existence or beliefs with all these challenges that you went through in your life?
2: Everybody does. Everybody that something bad happens to thinks, Why should this happen to me? But the truth of the matter is, we've gotten past that. I mean, Baruch and we have a strong marriage. And we've learned that we have to take care of each other you know my wife always says uh, maybe the sunrise is not my job i have a to-do list for today let us <laughs> worry about what he has to worry about i'll finish the, the google you know um and we were lucky that way because we learned that if one is depressed the other can't be depressed and we have to watch each other to take care of each other because it's natural in a million situations things aren't going to go right and you're going to be depressed and we've had that a lot of times but you know every night in kriya Shema, deep into it, further than most people go. We get a pusik from uh, Bishalach, right after Klal Yisrael came out, walked out proudly out of the, the Yamsuf, and the Egyptians who had been pursuing them were gone. Okay? So Moshe says to them, straight from Hashem, if you listen to Hashem's words, if you do all the things you're supposed to do, all the horrible sicknesses that I did in the horrible sickness that I did for the, to the Egyptians, I won't put on you. So it's natural for a person to say, you know what? I'm a Shana Shabbos. I give tzedakah. I, I help the community. I do all the. Th- I go to shul. I daven. I do everything. I got a nice little love, everything. I'm doing all those things. But I got a kid, I got a kid who's dying and I've got a kid who has, doesn't understand up from down. And Hashem promised, Kol so, so the, the Beis HaLevi says, you know what the machla that Mitzrayim had? Do you know what the machla the Egyptians had? You know what their sickness was? Until they drowned in, until that last second of their drowning in the Yamsuf, they didn't understand that it came from Hashem. They thought, It was all magic tricks, whatever. You know, Paris guys can make snakes too. But they finally realized the real sickness they had was that they didn't understand that it was from Hashem. And if you understand that, if you deeply understand that it all comes from Hashem, it won't bother you. You'll deal with it. You do the things you're supposed to do. You get through the world, you look around, who else can I help? If God forbid a parent has lost a child, my wife has become so incredibly expert at counseling people who are, who are going through that or have gone through that. You know what a difference it makes to go to somebody and say, it's happened to me, I understand. Other people don't always understand, but when you've had that experience, it makes such a giant difference. And if you understand that it came from Hashem, then you're immune, you're okay. Because, and I'd love to do a whole speech on EOV right now, but you probably don't have the time. But the bottom line is, we don't understand. And if you accept that, and you realize it comes from Hashem, then we just got to do what we got to do, and we got to fight all the way, and we never give up, and we got to try and be happy and make the people around us happy, and do what we have to do for our community, and things work out just fine.
0: Wow. Just listening, just listening to... The way you say the story, it's unbelievable. The positive energy, you know, with everything that's going on, how you accepted it. Know,
2: the what question is, said... yeah. what? okay, I'm sorry.
0: The question is, if you remember a time that you faced some negative, maybe depression, um, th- those negative feelings that many people have, and um, how you dealt with it.
2: Yeah, I remember going for days. I mean, we had so many close calls and our our son, who had been saved by lung transplants, suddenly had cancer from those transplants. And we had to deal with chemotherapy and radiation. And then it went away and then chemotherapy, radiation again. And then a third time he was the first and only person in the history of the world to get uh, stem cell transplants because he had an organ from one person and the rest of his organs were somewhere else and they have to match the stem cells to the person. You know, You know, and, and it didn't work. They tried it, they tried so hard. And I remember walking around for weeks with a cold feeling in the pit of my stomach. And we had to go through everything. We had orchim for Shabbos. We had kids who had to be happy. We had, you know, we have a seven-year-old who, a seven-year-old, he's, we have a 37-year-old who if Camp Hask had been able to have regular camp this year, uh, would have been in in his 31st year at Camp Hask. And in his head, he's always at Camp Hask. And he's talking to them and he's listening to the concerts and he's doing all the stuff. And that kid sits up at four o'clock in the morning after we're all sleeping, he gets up and the house is all his. And he goes to where my wife has her schedule for Shabbos, and he wants to know what the shape of the table is because we have different shapes depending on how many people we're having, and what the menu is. And he goes through the whole business because that's his whole world. And we have to continue doing that no matter what else is going on. At one point, when our son was having chemotherapy, we had a seder in the hospital. The whole hospital smelled like, like Lithuania because we had big roasters. We we did Pesach in the hospital and they put up with an. We had a great doctor, a wonderful guy, and he's now, he's made Aliyah, and he's in charge of cystic fibrosis in Israel now, but we had incredible, incredible good fortune, and you know what we found out? That first night of Pesach, we made a Seder in the hospital, and we had matzah, we had maror, and the whole hospital knew what was going on, and people who never would have been near a Seder, and I hadn't seen a Seder in years came by Uh, Maybe I could have some matzah. Wow, you have Yeah, It was an unbelievable experience. It was uplifting for all of us. That's the way we've lived our lives. My wife always says, you know, there are people who say the glass is half full. People who say the glass is half empty. And the truth of the matter is nobody wants to be around somebody who says the glass is half empty. Because they're annoying and they're a downer. And nobody wants to be around them.
1: Uh, There's an interesting question somebody texted me, but I'll read it. Answer it if you you feel. Did all these experiences ever interfere with you as a criminal judge? All these experiences you went through in your
2: life? I live in two worlds. Although, you know, I say I live in two worlds. The truth of the matter is nowadays, you know, I I do domestic violence court. I've done it for years and years. So uh, I used to have 200 people in the courtroom and it was a zoo. Now they only allow... 20 people in the courtroom and I'm in a plexiglass box and everybody has masks, and I couldn't hear or understand anything. Couldn't even read lips. So they had to put in microphones and speakers so that we could hear each other. It's crazy. And now because instead of having everybody come at once and take one after the other, now they schedule only uh, two or three every 15 minutes. And I found time now waiting between the cases. I listened to the DAF. So my worlds kind of collide sometimes. But in truth,
1: so if you learn the daf and it says chayev, do you just like mean that that's, that's <laughs> proof that the person's guilty? Chayev is you know, like that?
2: Uh, not quite. <laughs> Usually, it's puter avulaser. <laughs> but but the truth of the matter is, that world is so alien to us. Baruch Hashem, you know, in in a community like ours, where we have probably six hundred chomer shabbos families out of forty five thousand Jews. Uh, in a community like ours, um, we don't see too many of our kind in court. So I'm dealing with an entirely different world, entirely different element. I mean, I do some, I do child's court sometimes, which is child abuse. And a horrible thing. And Baruch Hashem, I have a short-term memory that allows me to go home to my own world, where I have an incredible wife, an incredible family, and happiness, and things to do for the clout. And, and that makes all the difference in the world. That's just something else that I do. And, and it's such a small, people who work in the court with me don't understand what a small part of my life it is.
1: I'm going to ask you a trivial question, but somebody's asking me, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, maybe it's not so trivial. How do I deal with friends and neighbors when it comes to things that, they, that can be embarrassing when I have children like this?
2: My wife says, <laughs> I rely on her for philosophy. She says, uh, if you have a green-eyed child, are you embarrassed? If you have a child who's a lefty, are you embarrassed? It's become kind of a crumb development in the firm world. I mean, I guess it's an outgrowth of never having any of them visible. That in some circles, it's embarrassing to have somebody like that. In my community, I'll tell you what happened last week. I get it. I mean, in, in my community, because I'm the, the judge and they all know me, the police know me, the firemen know me, everybody knows me. So <laughs> I get a text in the middle of court from an ambulance driver. He says, we saw your son Uri walking down the street and he waved us. So we made a U-turn and we said hello to him. And he was so nice. He doesn't make eye contact. He can't have a normal conversation with him. He loves hatzalah He thinks he's in hatzalah And, and, uh, and there's no atoll in Pittsburgh, but, but it's the kind of community where that can happen and it makes a difference also. There's so many people to help.
1: Okay, um, can we go a little bit uh, off tangent over here? A few people are texting. Sure. We got email. we gonna take a little uh, off the cuff. I'm sure it's a big question. Uh, feel free to answer. You live in Pittsburgh, the tree of life, 11 people were killed one Shabbos a little more than a year ago. Do you have a perspective on the increased anti-Semitism in America today?
2: Okay, I sure do. Let me tell you a little bit about True Life because it's a half mile from my house and I know it well and I knew the people who died, okay? It gives you some idea of what has happened to conservative Judaism in America, that this conservative congregation, which had 1,400 seats in the main show, had three different congregations using the building. The three different congregations at 945 on a Shabbos morning, including the rabbis and the janitor, had 22 people. And this guy came. They were Jews. The truth of the matter is he had a list. The third show on his list that they found in his house was the show I was in. It was the Yitzkowitz Bar Mitzvah. 500 people were there right down the street. He never made it there. He was a terrible, evil, crazy person, right? Although crazy is a legal definition, so I don't know if I want to say that. But you have to understand that as much as we have seen individual instances of anti-Semitism in America, my very extensive experience traveling back and forth across this country is that the people in America are not like that. I'll give you, I'll tell you what happened. At 9.45 in the morning, this guy walked into Tree of Life. Um, David and Cecil Rosenthal are two special needs brothers who live in a, in a group home. And Shabbos morning, they've actually had Shabbos meals at my house. Shabbos morning, these two brothers in their 50s would go for 20 years. They'd been going to Tree of Life, 8 o'clock Shabbos morning, and they would sit and have breakfast with Augie, the janitor. And then Cecil... David was, uh, never spoke, David was nonverbal. Cecil was very gregarious and outgoing, a big guy, and David would go in and he would straighten out the sidurim and the talisim and then he would sit in the front row and wait for David to start. Cecil would stand in the back with a pile of talisim and a pile of sidurim. People would come in and he'd offer them a sidurim and a talis and he'd say, Shabbat Shalom, welcome to Tree of Life. This guy came in and I guarantee you that's what Cecil did. Cecil said, Shabbat Shalom, welcome to of life. And this guy with an AR-15, and people don't know, if you don't know about guns, you're better off. But if you know, the, the an AR-15 has has a like a five inch bullet, 7.62 millimeter bullet, and it curlicues around so that when it hits a finger, it takes off a whole hand. And he shot, hundreds of shots in that show and he literally tore Cecil apart. David heard the noise. The rabbi heard the noise and the three people were sitting in front. He tried to get them to get up and go out the exit that was behind the iron Kodesh. Two of the people did, but David, who did not speak, pulled away. And he started to run back up the aisle toward where his brother was lying in a pool of blood straight toward the killer and he was heard to say before he was shot and killed also. David, who didn't say anything at all, I wanna go home. Jason Lando, commander of zone five of the Pittsburgh police, there are six zones. That morning, Shabbos morning, Saturday morning, nothing's going on. So they only have one zone commander on. Jason Lando was the zone commander. He was three blocks away from Tree of Life when he got the call. He gets the call. He had his Bar Mitzvah at Tree of Life. He went to Hebrew school at Tree of Life. His grandfather, who lives down the street, goes to Tree of Life every morning. Shabbos, he rides. His grandfather is like 90 years old. Shabbos morning, he rides. The lady who was supposed to take him, a wonderful lady. You know, we I have to tell you, 22 people were at that conservative shul. Most of them drove there that day. But in Pittsburgh, 44,000 people, didn't go to show at all that morning. So you have to, you know. So he was supposed to go, he was supposed to get a ride and he called and said, nah, I hurt myself this morning, I don't think I'm gonna go. But Jason Landa, when he heard the call and he ran to run the scene, he didn't know if his grandfather was in there or not. And if you heard the tapes of his talk, talking to the dispatcher, the dispatcher says, Who should I send? And with his voice breaking, he said, send everybody. Within three minutes of the first call going out, the Pittsburgh police, unlike what you may have seen in other cities or other places, they ran inside the building. The police station's right around the corner, so they didn't get in their cars, they just ran. First officer opened the door, got shot. They called in the SWAT team, they were there in 11 minutes. I can barely get my shoes on in 11 minutes. I can't pick a tie in 11 minutes. Tim Matson, 6'3", 250 pounds, a former special forces guy covered with tattoos, covered with Kevlar outfit and his own AR-15, first guy in. I think he was hit 11 times, three times in his chest plate and the rest of them all over his body, including the one that went through his helmet and zinged around his head. He was in the ICU. I took Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinrib from the OU. I could get past the police and everybody, and we took him into the ICU where the entire SWAT team, 10 or 11 guys, guys who know me because that's my business, and I know most of them at least by sight, tough, grubby guys. And they all stood there, and Rabbi Weinrib gave him a bracha for Rafua and told him how much we appreciated him. And these guys cried. Shabbos afternoon, that Shabbos afternoon, Minchat time. At the corner of Forbes and Murray in Pittsburgh, which is the center of Squirrel Hill, the Jewish community, which is relatively small, thousands of guyim showed up, thousands, and just stood in the street, blocking the street blocks in either direction with candles in the rain. In Pittsburgh, the, the dominant religion is the Steelers. The Steelers had a moment of silence. Whoever heard of such a thing? They put the, the, the mug and David symbol uh, stronger than hate they put it on their shoes. They put it on, the, the, the uh, penguins put it on their shirts. They had commercials about it. Every single store all across our county had a sign in front with a mug and dove that says stronger than hate, a variation on the Steelers emblem. If you wanna really see it, go on YouTube and look up Pittsburgh mother and you'll see my daughter Shoshi who lives next door who went the next morning to the police line with her two kids. And there was a guy standing around from one of the networks and he interviewed her and went viral on Yeshiva World. And she explains what happened in just a couple of minutes, but it's worth watching. Pittsburgh mother. There are two in Pittsburgh, there's the from one and there's the conservative reform one, which is combined. I don't know exactly what they do, but here's what happened. They backed out of the way and let our Hever Kedisha take over, which they did. It was such a mess. You have no idea. My wife spent hours just cleaning specks of blood off the walls, off the pictures on the walls. The the, the carpet in the children's room was so bloody that they had to roll it up and bury it. They took out piles and piles of stuff that they just couldn't be salvaged. One guy told me he picked up a sitter and there was a flow of blood from under the sitter. We can't even imagine, but here, but they got out the, the they gave it to the Frum Chever Kedisha to do the actual Shemush. And then to clean up the building, these two Chever kadishas got together. And when they had piled everything up that they were gonna bury, they took it to a, to a cemetery and they buried it. They had a Leviathan for this stuff together. And as a result, I know of three different families who are in the non-Film Khevr Kedishu and now send their kids to the day school because they had that experience. Go figure. The world has changed. One last thing, and this is probably most important to understand, okay? The mayor of Pittsburgh did a fabulous job, not Jewish. He did a fabulous job of, of we had the whole community had v- vigils and, and meetings and, and all kinds of stuff shivas were in the jewish community center because nobody had a house big enough for the thousands of people who came for shiva and these people didn't even understand shiva most of them they'd never had the experience they didn't know what, what to expect they didn't know anything about it we had levias. the first leviah was david and cecil rosenthal thousands of people showed up the pittsburgh steelers showed up en masse. two busloads of pittsburgh steelers everyone is there now david the brother who didn't speak for many years had done what my son Uri does frequently. He would go into the local fire station, which in Pittsburgh, in Squirrel Hill, appropriately enough, is number 18. And those guys there are very nice to these special needs adults. They let Uri climb on the truck and they smile at him and they, all that kind of stuff. David would do that too, and David didn't speak. So there are two coffins in the front of this giant hall with thousands of people there waiting, absolute silence. The Israeli consul is there, the governor, the mayor, everybody. And suddenly the door opens and engine company number 18 marches in in their dress whites. And one by one, they stop, turn, stand in front of the coffins and salute. And afterwards, the fire chief said about somebody he'd never really spoken to because David didn't speak. He said, I thought David would like that. And last but not least, our mayor. The mayor announced after everything was over on November 9th, we are going to have a rally. He brought in Tom Hanks who was in town to, to make a movie about Mr. Rogers. He brought in other people. He's got all the big we were going to be there and you're gonna have it at, in Point State Park downtown, everybody should come. The day before they told the mayor, we gotta move it or postpone it or something. We can't have it on the Friday, November 9th because it's, there's gonna be a typhoon. Nobody's gonna to come to an open park in a typhoon. He said, they'll come. They'll bring umbrellas, they'll wear ponchos, they have to come, we have to do it there. And then, okay, he didn't wanna move the date. So they had it and people came. And the following week, the mayor of Pittsburgh put a full-page ad in the Jewish paper, and this is what it said. It said on November 9th, 1938, which we know is Kristallnacht, government leaders turned their backs to Jewish citizens in Germany, Austria, and Czechoslovakia. On that day, police officers and emergency officials turned their backs. On that day, community leaders turned their backs to death, destruction, and violence that led to the Holocaust. On November 9th, 2018, government leaders stood in support of our Jewish community in Pittsburgh. He insisted it be that day. On this day, police officers and emergency officials spoke against hatred. On this day, community leaders denounced anti-Semitism. On this day, we stand united that hate against one is hate against all. We are Pittsburgh, we are stronger than hate. And he signed it. I guess with a stop to Mayor Kahana who really originated it, never again, Bill Peduto, mayor of Pittsburgh. It doesn't mean as much when we say never again, but when the guy, our mayor proudly goes all over the world and tells people that when his police rushed into the shul, and that's how we first heard about it because they came from everywhere. We heard so many police sirens shooting past the show. we had no idea what was going on, but we knew it had to be something. And then all the doctor's beepers went off. But for a guy to say it. For the guy, our mayor proudly tells people all over the world, his police officers might be the first case in history where armed government officials ran into a show to save the Jews. So people talk about it. They say, yeah, there are isolated instances and all kinds of creatures come out from under the rocks. But in this country, my experience has been completely different. You can comfortably wear a yarmulke almost anywhere. In Pittsburgh, people wear a yarmulke. My next door neighbor, one of the two people who was shot one of the two civilians, there were four police officers. This year. One of the two civilians who was shot and almost died. He wears a yarmulke now. He didn't wear a yarmulke before. He was in the conservative shoulder that day. He wears the yarmulke everywhere now. It's become a thing. It's become more acceptable. So many more people are comfortable with it. It changed a lot of things. It changed a lot of perspectives. And uh, it was a horrible thing. But I got to tell you, for six weeks at least after that, nobody had Squirrel Hill honked a horn. They would stop and say, no, you go, you go. It changed people's perspective.
1: OK, thank you, Judge Butler. Let's go to closing. I want to first thank you again tonight for coming on. Um, I can tell you from my personal experience, tonight was the most Let's Get Real program ever. Anakam, it was a little bit too real for me. Got to take mm-hmm. it down a notch. Um, your Honor, I can just tell you so many texts are coming in. People are just like the whole time, like really, really touched by tonight's program. It's unbelievable. Um, again, next week we're going to have on the program uh, world famous therapist Dr. Kiva Perlman, PhD from Queens, discussing how pain shapes our lives and a vulnerable look into the world of trauma and suffering. The following week, before Shoshana's, right before Shoshana's, we have Simon Jacobson discussing how to go into Rosh shoshana after a year like this. Can be both real powerful and uplifting programs. I really, uh, I'd really advise everybody to try to come and tune on. Again, everything tonight is recorded and you could be watching it tomorrow. It'll be on www.menachemburnfell.com. Any questions or anything for, for, for Judge Butler, please email coachmenachem at gmail.com. Tonight's share is share number 21. If anybody wants to hear this year or any other pre recorded share, please call the phone number at 732 924 8464. Again, that's 732 924 8464. Um, and again I want to give a special uh, thank you to all our uh, sponsors for tonight and our advertising sponsors uh, The Liquid Scoop, I want to give a thank you to Khazak, uh, Robin Yanif always pushing the program, Chazak.org Co. Live, uh, Mika Sofer I'd like to give a thank you to JCN, Chayla Kaplan and Shul Summer for always promoting us digitally um, again, Do you have funny. a
2: second for one more thing?
1: Oh no, you're going to get the closing, whoa we're just, uh, getting, okay, uh, okay.
2: we're
1: just getting warmed up here this is like the halftime okay. show This is the, you know, you know, the Steelers, we have the <laughs> halftime show uh, Coach Menachem, say a few words and then, and then give it back to me and I'll, and I'll uh, give it back to the judge.
0: Wow. Just uh, listening to you. Um, thank you again for coming on and um, sharing your story, being vulnerable and talking about life experience, which is, it doesn't sound like it was easy at all. But the way you talk about it with, um, with the passion and the positive energy is really unbelievable. And uh, again, I just want to mention, obviously, um, like I said, it's a process, and uh, it takes time to get there. And even if you find yourself that you're not there yet, don't be harsh on yourself. You can accept that too. If you find yourself in the anger or in the bargaining, and you haven't got to that acceptance yet, accept that too. So it's... Uh, Obviously, I know I can't judge, and uh, everybody has their own challenges, whether it's big or small. So, thank you very much. And um, I just want to mention that um, in the email, I'm going to send out the information of the pamphlet that we read before of Koach. So, whoever wants to use the services, and thank you again for coming on. Before the
1: judge, I, one... closing, I just want to say again. Um, for all the people that are watching tonight, again, it's been tremendously inspirational because again, you're a person that lived through tremendous things. People watching, every obviously, everybody has their own peckle, their own pain, and um, you know. But what you've gone through with such simcha and such positivity, facing your your challenges, your adversities with such simcha, is 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 really moving for everybody watching, moving for me, and um, it's special. And uh, close and leave everybody blown
2: away. It's more of a coincidence than anything else. So the two things that my father did that most affected me were his view on Shabbos, which is that uh, everything new should be saved for Shabbos and his Simcha Sachayim. And it's an amazing coincidence that it, it comes from this week's sedra. This week's sedra starts off a farmer brings his Bikurim to the Migdash and He gives it to the Kohen, and he has to recite his history, and he has to say, I did all the things I'm supposed to do. I took care of stock, I took care of the community, I took care of the Almona, I took care of my family, I took care of the Kohen, I took care of the institutions, I did everything I'm supposed to do. And then the Torah says, at that point, at that moment, you should be happy with everything you did that you accomplished. You got your crop in, you did everything you're supposed to do, be happy. And it's a plain directive in the Torah. It says, it's like, uh, you would think it's a mitzvah saseh, but the mone HaMitzvah, the ha the, the the rambam, and, uh, nobody counts it for one of the 613. Here, the Torah is making a straight-up statement. This is what you should do, and nobody counts it. And I heard a Rav say, it's advice. You did a good job. Take a victory lap. Be happy Today. The Tohacha is coming. All of us have rain in our lives. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what is around the corner. Later in the sedger we have the tochacha, the horror of it and the fear of it, and everything. But in the meantime, the Shana Hashem Don't worry about tomorrow. Today, make a bracha on today and be happy about today and take it day by day.
1: Right. Thank you very much. Everybody, see you next week. Same time, same place. Judge, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good night, everybody.